Let's stand this morning for the reading of the word. The reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 18, finishing there at the end of verse 29, the end of the chapter. Revelation 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your work, your love and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But this I have against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, this morning, as we look to God's Word, and we'll primarily be looking at the books of Kings, but all Scripture is inspired, all Scripture is profitable. And I want us to look this morning at the biblical character of Jezebel. As I asked last week uh, in the adult Sunday schools, we're studying on angiology. I asked the question is, does anybody know anyone named Jezebel? <laughs> we don't, even to this day. And I want us to look at the character of this woman that's portrayed and given to us an example in redemptive history. And we'll be looking at historical narrative. It's always important when we come to understand God's word that we understand the genre of the text that we're looking at. And we'll be looking at historical narrative this morning. And it's also important to gather the context so we can understand and put things together. And King David had been dead for about 135 years at this point. His kingdom, which had been enlarged by his son Solomon had now been fractured into two weakened fragments. And you've got Samaria and Jerusalem, and they both became capitals when it split into the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. And we, I think we have a slide on that. Put it up if you can, you can see. So you've got the division of the, the two kingdoms. Jerusalem became the capital of Judah in the south, and Samaria, capital of Israel in the north. And basically where the ten tribes were. And the northern kingdom of Israel suffered under the succession of a great deal of wicked men. 
And one of these wicked men in particular we'll be looking at is introduced with these words in 1 Kings chapter 16. And there we read, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. <laughs> so you've got King Ahab had the distinction of being the most wicked king who reigned over Israel up until his day. So you're looking about the ninth century B.C. at this point. And we shouldn't be surprised to read it all there in verse 31 of 1 Kings chapter 16. And it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So that's the, the, the context. You know, so you know the Sidonians, Sidon, was another name for the Phoenicians. And you can probably see that on the, on the map up there to the north. Which before the Phoenicians came along, who were they? Those were the Canaanites. And these were seafaring people on the eastern Mediterranean coast who occupied the great port cities at that time of Tyre and Sidon, Sidon, however you want to pronounce that, which is today modern-day Lebanon. So understanding the context in which things were going on, and it's just the same. I want you to understand how relevant this is. That's why it's profitable for understanding and teaching so we understand the world system, if you will, today. It's, It's exactly the same. So at that point... You had, you know, the kings looking, I've got this ever-present threat of of Syria, and I've got the growing threat of the Assyrians. So Ahab decides, as a leader, that I need an alliance. I need a military alliance with my neighboring nations. So he ends up making a treaty with the king of Phoenicia and sealed it by what? Marrying his daughter. Now, for those who study Western European country. This happens all the time. You know, they're just political marriages in order to help preserve the peace. So he seals it by marrying his daughter. Of course, she's a princess. And this is how Jezebel historically got to Samaria, the capital of Israel. Remember, Israel's up there in the north at this point. So you've got the king of Phoenicia, who marries off his daughter, was not only the political leader of his people, but he was also the high priest of their religion, as his name F B L B L implies. So you've got Jezebel, the daughter, who's the princess, and she had grown up as a little girl and been indoctrinated into this worship of Baal or Baal. And again, I looked up all these words for pronunciation, so I wouldn't sound quite. So one of them had forty-one different pronunciations. <laughs> Of one of these names that I, so I'm just going to pick the one I can say easiest, and if, if you can have a better one. So anyway, you've got her in the context of, of, of growing up as a little girl involved in this, this pagan worship. And so you're worshiping by all, and then you've got that god, this false pagan god, his female consort with his Asherah. So we've got, we found a slide of, of that. You can see a depiction there of who that would represent of this false god. 
Well, Baal and understanding their thinking, and again, we went through this last week in the understanding in the angelology class of how these pagan gods, these demigods of the pantheon of these gods, how you can trace them all the way back. And this goes back into the Egyptians, and then you've got the uh, Babylonian. Uh, the Babylonians, you've got the Assyrians, you know, then it goes into the Canaanite gods, and you've got the Greeks, and you've got the Romans, and you've, even up to this day, they still exist. And we talked about that before, Baal and Moloch worship. This stuff has not disappeared over the years. It's still alive. Well, Baal was considered the god of the land. And he, they considered him on it, not, not the Almighty, the creator of all things. But Baal owned it, and they said he was he controlled the weather, the weather god, and the storm god, and therefore that was due to the increase of of the crops and the cattle. And you got Asherah, the female goddess, was considered the the mother goddess of fertility, and the principal female divinity of the Phoenicians. That's who she was of of that picture up there. That's how they represented her, and she was also called Ishtar by the Assyrians, and. Astorate by the Greeks and the Romans. So they just kind of changed names, but they never really went away. Just a different understanding of different cultures, if you will. So you've got the idols, these false gods, which with demonic forces, spiritual forces behind them, of both Baal and Asherah, who you've got Jezebel coming, whom she worshipped. Well, they stood side by side, in the temples there in Phoenicia of that area. And they were worshipped by the priests and also by the temple prostitutes, which we know in the New Testament talks about this ongoing practice. And what they would do with these priests and the temple prostitutes were, you know, this lewd, perverse behavior that would go on. And that's what we saw there in Revelation as we read. It's still going on at that day. You know, and they would do this lewd behavior with the hope that their gods and the goddesses would follow their example and therefore increase the productivity of their agriculture, you know, increase their animals, their livestock, and give them more an abundance of, of children. And in times of crisis, such as famine, the people would end up resorting to cutting themselves, and they even sacrifice their children to appease these gods. So again, I'm saying we have the same thing going on today. It might be a little bit more subtle, and I'll point that out as we go on. But kind of ironic, do you know what Jezebel's name literally means? Chaste. And she's anything but that. You know, she was a self-willed, domineering woman with a weak husband. And this is going to tie in with John's messages out of Ephesians 5 of God's ordained order in the headship of men. And men assuming responsibility and the roles that they play. But she was married to a weak man. And she had little trouble getting what she wanted and getting her way. So guess what she did? (laughs) She marries Ahab, the king. She comes in there with her background, if you will. So she gets her husband, manipulates him to build a house for Baal. You know, we're going to build a temple beside the palace there in Samaria, the capital. As well as not only that... But we're going to make an idol to the fertility goddess. So this is what, you know, God is is really upset. What's the first commandment that was given at Mount Sinai? You shall have no other gods before me. He's the God above all gods, the one true and living God. 
Yahweh. So, not only does she get her husband, this weak man who's giving in to her, when he knows the law of God, and he goes ahead and he does it anyway. So she not only does that, guess what else she does? She brings 450 prophets of Baal. And another 400 prophets, so you got 850, you know, 400 from the Asherah, the female fertility goddess. And she brings them and imports them, if you will, from Phoenicia. She houses them in the palace, the royal palace. She feeds them in royal style. And their duties, you know, she brings them in in order to promote the false worship, contrary to God's law and God's word, to worship Baal and Asherah throughout Israel, the northern kingdom at that point. So not only does this wicked woman do that, (laughs) she also sets out to eradicate, I mean kill, assassinate, murder, every remnant of Yahweh's true worship in his his prophets. So she goes about systematically killing off what she doesn't want being promoted. Again, this is a characteristic of always wanting to suppress the truth. Put to death those who oppose you. Those that want to speak the truth. Those that preach the truth. Those that expose the evil and wickedness. The works and deeds of, of darkness always do that throughout history. Well, as she sets off to kill them, and what weak men always do throughout history, guess how some of the prophets that were, if you will, on Jehovah's side, Yahweh's side, thinking more of themselves, they begin to compromise their convictions and they simply turn into yes men for King Ahab. But you've got another group of a hundred faithful prophets that won't bend the knee, (laughs) were more concerned about pleasing and glorifying the true and living God, the Almighty, than they were about their own skin. And they were hidden in a cave and fed secretly by a godly servant of Ahab. Remember his name? Obadiah. But Elijah, and we'll talk about him, he was the only one that was really courageous enough and and would live by his convictions to serve the true and living God, he was the only one courageous enough to really stand up openly against Jezebel's wickedness and denounce it and confront her. And you recall how God gave Elijah a great victory when he called down fire from heaven upon there at Mount Carmel. You remember that where the, the prophets of Baal, they set it up on the altar and they... Prayed, and it says they became almost berserk in their behavior, trying to arouse this false god to come down and do that. But Elijah offers a simple request for prayer, and God sends the fire down to do this at Mount Carmel. And after that, it was exposed who the true and living God was, and the prophets of Baal were told there in Scripture were slain. And at that point, it looks like, you know, maybe the nation of Israel might repent and actually turn back to God. But that didn't happen. You know, Jezebel wasn't finished with her sinister work. You know, she was very angry about that. And she swore in her rage and anger that she was going to kill Elijah for what he had just done. And so what did Elijah do? He ended up running for his life. 
And you recall the story there. He was running for his life. He collapsed in the wilderness under a juniper tree, we're told, according to Scripture. And he, remember, he was despairing of life at that point. He pleaded with God to let me die. Well, God in His graciousness, and again, this will tie in with our Sunday school, what did He do? He sent some angels to minister to Him, to give Him food, to give Him revitalizing. But Baal worship continued on. You know, dragging the nation to new depths of degradation. Jezebel brought disruption and distress to Israel for many years to come after that. Well, of course, King Ahab, he's got some responsibility and he's got his own issues he's dealing with. Again, for one thing, he had willingly entered into this marriage for political convenience. And again, remember too, in his way of thinking, remember the, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil? Well, that's going to open up the trade, which means money, the trade access to those port cities, and it is also going to give the Phoenicians travel through uh, Israel, down through there. So again, they're, they're, it's multifaceted in the agendas that are taking place behind. Things are not always as clear-cut as they sometimes seen or as we're told. So, Ahab's own self-focus and self-will becomes even more evident in the weakness of this particular man in an incident involving what's referred to as the king in the vegetable garden. And shortly after his marriage to Jezebel, Ahab not only or beautified the palace that he was living in there in Samaria, so that it became called, according to 1 Kings chapter 22, the ivory house. And this is interesting as I was doing the study. Archaeology has uncovered some of those carved ivories. And they're in museums. You can go look at them today. As well as the palace itself. They've uncovered where that actually was. So Ahab had also built a second palace in Jezreel. And that was about 25 miles to the north in an area which was more, uh, had more moderate weather during the winter time. So it's like, you know, having a place in the mountains in the summer and going to your other palace down in Florida for the winter. So, and we read there in 1 Kings chapter 21. Now it came about after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard or a garden which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, who's king of Samaria. So he's got his second palace up there, and next to it is some property. <laughs> Ahab decided what? Well, I think I want to acquire some more land. I'd like Naboth's property. So he went to him, you know, which is, which is good. He said, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's close beside my house. And he's just not wanting at that point to take it. And he says, I'll give you a better vineyard than that. And if, if, if that's not good enough, I'll pay you for it. First Kings chapter 21, verse 2. 
Well, Naboth, he ended up declining that offer. And it's not because he was greedy and wanted to hold out for more money, but he did just what he should have done according to the law of God, for God had forbidden the Jews to sell their paternal inheritance according to Leviticus chapter 25. So when God apportioned the land among the 12 tribes, he told them, don't give it away. You know, if you inherit it, you're to keep that land. Remember the one tribe that he didn't give any land to? Who was that? The Levites, because God was going to be their portion. So it's not that Naboth was trying to be difficult or hold out for more money or be greedy. He's simply obeying the law of the Lord at that point. He's being faithful to what God had instructed them to do at that point. So Ahab, we're told in First Kings chapter 21, he gets down in the dumps over it. <laughs> and it says, he came into his house, sullen and vexed, because the word which Naboth, the Jezreelite, had spoken to him. No, I, I, I can't sell it to you. I, I can't give it up. I've got to keep it. And Ahab, it says, lay down on his bed. He turned away his face and he ate no food. He's depressed. <laughs> He's discouraged. So Jezebel comes in and she finds her husband, the king, sulking in his bed. And she says to him, how is it that your spirit is so sullen? And that you're not eating food. What's going on here, she's saying. So he explained to her how Naboth refused to give up his property. What? What is Jezebel? How does she reply? First Kings chapter 21, verse 7. Do you not reign over Israel? <laughs> That's how she responds. In modern terms, it might sound like, your wife nagged. What kind of man are you? <laughs> are you a man or a mouse? <laughs> do you not know that you're the king and you can do whatever you want? And this, again, is coming from her background where she grew up like that. And this is modern day, like, you're going to let your boss talk to you like that? You go in there and tell him how it is, and the next thing you know, the husband ends up getting fired. But that's how she's relating to her husband. At that point, don't you know that you're the king? You can just take whatever you want. Well, Ahab understood that even though he's the king, he's still under the authority of the Almighty. And we discover really how weak and wicked this man is, Ahab, when Jezebel said, Arise, eat, eat some bread, let your heart be joyful. I will give you the garden of Naboth, Jezreelite. <laughs> you just you just get up and eat. Let me take care of things, <laughs> is what she's saying at this point. So what does she end up doing? The age-old story. I guess nothing's changed from the fall. She ends up conspiring. <laughs> she's going to kill Naboth off. And again, a criminal conspiracy is just two or more people agreeing to commit a crime. So she conspires to do this. And what's, even though she comes from Phoenicia and the way the kings would have dealt up there, she still knows the law enough that she's going to basically engage in lawfare to get what she wants at this point. She's going to pay two false witnesses to testify that they heard Naboth blaspheme God and the king. She's going to pay them off. And this is as old as it gets with espionage. How do you get people on espionage to turn and do what you want? One, you either get them through greed 
money. You pay them off, follow the money. I've told you that how many times in Basic Criminal Investigation 101. Who stands to profit? Same old thing going on here. What If you can't get them through greed, what do you get them through then? Vice. You get them through their vice. You catch them where you blackmail them and force them to do. That's the whole thing that's still going on today. Now, instead of setting up honeypots and other stuff that they have to do to entrap politicians and people like that, they can do it all digitally and electronically to frame people. But she's framing Naboth is all she's doing here, and she's getting those people of that area to go along with it. So... She's going to get them to testify, perjure themselves, that they heard Naboth and his sons blaspheme the king and God. So guess what ends up happening to them? They get stoned to death according to the law, falsely. Well, at that point, the king Ahab is free to take the land. And what we have here is a manifestation of Jezebel. She's showing her husband Ahab what her philosophy of life is. And that's simply take what you want, destroy anyone who stands in your way. It doesn't change today. That happens in politics every day. It happens in the workplace. You're standing in my way of promotion. I'll do what it takes to get climb that ladder. I don't care who I crush underneath it. That's part of the Jezebel spirit we're talking about. She conspired to commit a heinous crime. And the thing about this, that she's characterized by being deceptive. (laughs) Because she did all this, and she swore out that warrant without the knowledge of her husband. She did it behind her back, his back. She sealed it with his seal. And if you read the the account there, it was to her that they reported back that your deed's been done, he's dead, not to Ahab. And of this disgraceful, wicked, evil incident in Ahab's life, God said in 1 Kings chapter 21, surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. A godly wife will challenge her husband to listen and to obey God, not to encourage him to sin. But the story's not over. (laughs) Elijah the prophet, he eventually meets Ahab there in Naboth's vineyard, and pronounces God's judgment on both Ahab and his wife Jezebel for their wicked deeds. Nothing can be hidden from the Lord. He knows exactly what they're doing. He knows the intentions of their heart. And it was several years later when that judgment came on Ahab. And that incident, historically, started over over a city east of Jordan called Ramoth-Gilead, which Ahab said belonged to Israel. But there was a dispute over that because the Syrians still held on to it. And when Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, came to visit with Ahab, you know, Ahab asked him, hey, would you go to battle with me so I can get this back? And Jehoshaphat, he he agreed, said, I'll I'll fight with you. My men are your men. My horses are your horses. But to his credit, he says, I want to consult with the Lord first before we do this. 
So Ahab calls, guess who? His yes men. <laughs> and he gathers them together, assured him that the Lord would give him the city into the hand of the king. The yes men are going to tell you, tell you what you want to hear. Not the truth. But Jehoshaphat, again, to his credit, he still wasn't satisfied with that. He wants another opinion. <laughs> Is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that I might inquire of him? He asked in 1 Kings chapter 22. And Ahab replies, yep, there's one guy left, but guess what? I hate him. You know why I hate him? Because he doesn't prophesy good concerning me. <laughs> uh, well, guess what? At that point, Jehoshaphat said, man, that's the guy I want to talk to. <laughs> Might get the truth out of him rather than just you know, a yes man at this point. So he makes arrangements to hear from him. So Micaiah is called. And he knew at that point, hey, I'm going before the king. I'm going to tell him the truth of what God wants me to tell him, not what he wants to hear. I know my life's in danger. He spoke what God told him. And he says, Israel will be scattered on the mountains like sheep without a shepherd. As you might expect, Ahab, as a fool, rejected the word of the Lord and had the prophet, guess what, thrown in prison. <laughs> that put him on bread and water at a minimum till I get back if I'm still alive. Ahab's going to listen to who he wants to hear to tell him what he wants to hear so he can do as he pleased regardless of what God's will is. But it didn't work out like Ahab had hoped and planned because he knew the Syrians would target him. And the commanders of the Syrian army said, you know, go after Ahab, I want him. So what did he do? He can't try to hide. You know, field craft, if you will. He removed his royal garments, we told. He disguised himself as just a regular soldier. We said in 1 Kings chapter 22, it says, Now a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king in Israel in the opening of his armor. The soldier did, he didn't know who he was shooting at as he aimed his arrow, but his arrow penetrated a, a very narrow spot that was open in the armor between the pieces of, of Ahab's armor. You know, very few bowmen would have been that accurate. Uh, it was obvious God providentially is directing, carrying out his judgment, which he had promised against Ahab, that God was guiding that that arrow. And you, you recall the story where it was prophesied because he, he knows he's mortally wounded. And what did he do? He, he tells the, his other guys there in the chariot, you know, prop me up. And it says he died later that night. But it says the chariot was filled in the floor of the chariot with blood. So they take him back into Samaria where they're going to bury him. And they wash it out at the pool where the prostitutes were bathing, which is all according to the prophecy of how he would die. So he ends up being buried there. Well, Jezebel ends up outliving Ahab by almost 14 years. So then the next guy who comes along, the captain of the army, Jehu, you know, he's going to be the instrument of divine judgment in divine discipline in dealing with Jezebel. So he goes and kills Jerohom, the son of Ahab. So he kills the king's son, and then he rides on to Jezreel, and he's in his chariot. 
And Scripture says when, when, when he came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. You know, she's got her informants. She's got her lookouts. She, he says she painted her eyes. She put on her makeup and adorned her head. You know, she did her hair and looked out the window. That's what it says. And again, we, we have a hard time sometimes relating to this as we read it. Uh, but she knew what was going to happen at that point. And to show you her character, she's going to be defiant right up to the very end. You know, she's going to be arrogant, self-willed, and unrepentant to the end. Because she knows Jehu's coming to kill her. Some of the commentaries I read said that now she's trying to seduce him at this point because she's an adulterer, seducer. Well, I don't believe that because it was said there about how they make up, put on her makeup, did her hair, and goes out there the window. Well, I don't think she was trying to seduce him and win him over because it says she shouted abuses at him from the window. Now, when we think of a window, you, you kind of get the idea that, you know, you just go to your house window and you kind of look out. That's, what, that's not what she was doing. It was really the window of appearances is the his, history behind that. And that would be just like over in Buckingham Palace, you know, when they would come out on the, the big opening, that's the window of appearance. They'd come out and wave at everybody. That's what she would have done. She would have stepped forth as the queen. You know, all made up and ready to go and be defiant as Jehu comes. And you remember what happens there at the window of appearances as she's standing there boldly. Jehu's command, several of the eunuchs, her attendees, if you will, of her servants, they throw her down. And then it fulfills a prophecy that's given in Second Kings chapter 9. We're told what happens. And some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses. And he trampled her underfoot. I mean, he took those war horses and stomped her after she was thrown off that balcony. And then what happens after that? She's consumed by the dogs of the street. They came and literally ate her up. But guess what was left of her? Remember her feet? I think it says the palms of her hands and maybe the skull. That was, you know, what happened. And all this was prophesied by the all-knowing God, the Almighty. She was immediately consumed by the dogs. And it was a violent death, but it was illustrated again the seriousness of sinful, self-willed people in opposition to God, promoting false worship. So to sum all this up, just get an understanding of the character of this woman that we're dealing with, you know, what are we talking about when we speak of Jezebel? You know, she's a wicked, manipulative, seductive, devil-worshipping murderess. That's who she is. I think you get the picture. Her name has literally become a proverb. As I said during the Sunday school class, there used to be a publication. Uh, I think it was in circulation for 16 years, but it recently just went bankrupt, and it was called Jezebel, which promoted everything that she did. Her name has become a proverb, and it's given... Again, too, in a sense, by the Apostle John is his description of a certain woman there at Thyatira, at that church. You know, Jezebel has stamped her name on history as a representative of all that is deceptive, crafty, malicious, revengeful, and cruel. And to this day, we don't know anybody named Jezebel. I've never met anybody by that name. I don't know any parent that would name their daughter Jezebel, but how it is stuck through or with her 
during all this time. And Jesus, our Lord, through the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, he gives a strong warning of judgment on that Jezebel spirit. And this is my point today. And that spirit of Jezebel is just alive today as it was back then. It is the spirit that is behind disorder in our nations, in our churches, in our families. It's behind modern-day radical feminism, all the sexual immorality and the lifestyles that are out there and the perversions that are promoted. This is the Jezebel spirit. It's behind abortion on demand. It's behind late-term abortion. All this wickedness. And that Jezebel spirit is always motivated by its own agenda, seeking control. It relentlessly pursues it. And lets nothing stand in its way. It's intent on getting what it wants when it wants in opposition to the holiness and righteousness of God. The Jezebel spirit that reigns today is a a demonic influence in the world. Again, our, our battle is not principally material, but against these wickedness and spiritual high places and darkness these demonic influences that we face. It's in the world, it's in society at large, but it's also, unfortunately, within the church. In Jezebel, when I say that, this personified and typified, even though she was a historical person, that spirit not only affects women, but it affects men also. It's an equal opportunity (laughs) aspect of that. But the thing about it, The Jezebel spirit cannot and does not operate without an Ahab that tolerates it, that puts up with it. And namely here I say men of God's ordained responsibility to lead their families, lead their wives, and lead their churches. And I believe to lead their nations. Remember, as you've heard me say before, weak men lead to hard times. (laughs) Men of courage, men willing to stand against evil, to call it out, to bring light where there is darkness reigning. And every Jezebel problem is an Ahab problem. Ahab should not have abdicated his spiritual leadership or his responsibility. And by doing that and being a weak man, not a godly man, result was his family and his nation were destroyed and people suffered. And Jezebel spirit was in that first century church and it's also in the 21st century. Don't fool yourself. As Sam read in Revelation 2.20 where Jesus, nevertheless I have a few things against you. Because you tolerate that woman Jezebel. You know, some commentators debate whether or not there was an actual woman Jezebel or if it was personification and type of that. He says, this woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, false teaching, to teach and seduce my servants, my people, to commit sexual immorality. And that means basically a spiritual adultery. 
And they were probably physically committing immorality. But more importantly, when God in Hosea pictures that, it's, it's, it's being disloyal, unfaithful to the true and living God. Enticing them to eat things that are sacrificed to the idols. And idolatry is, is a sure sign that Jezebel is at work. And we know from Second Corinthians, as Paul is writing there in an inspiration in chapter 6, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Well, we primarily apply that to marriage relationships. But it goes further than that. And he goes on and he says, For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And the church, to a large degree, is doing that today. The context in this particular passage was Christians who were eating meat in the temple of the idols. Verse 15, in what fellowship has Christ with Baal? None. Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And he goes on to explain, for you are the temple of the living God. God's spirit under the new covenant, the new heart lives within each of us. We're not to be yoked. We're not to be enticed. We're not to give in to these unbelieving spirits of Jezebel. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out. Separate from them. You've got nothing to do with. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. I will receive you. And he says, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. But we're constantly flirting with the world. The Jezebel spirit. And scripture gives us these pictures, if you will, of two completely different and opposing women. And this will tie in with what John's just been preaching through Ephesians. I'm trying to work that together so you can see how this whole system of, from Genesis to Revelation, all fits together in God's plan and picture. So you've got these two women that we can divide up and use as examples from Scripture. You've got one, you've got the pure bride. (laughs) And on the opposite end, you've got what? The harlot. What's Jesus preparing What are we to do? We're to be the bride has made herself ready. Jesus is coming to receive a pure bride without spot or blemishes. Not a harlot. I remember the words of Paul Washer talking about the shepherds of the modern day church. And this has been going on throughout church history. He said the leaders of the church acting like Ahab in order to flirt with the world in this Jezebel spirit. And he says, you men have taken that spotless, beautiful body of Christ and you dress her up and paint her face so she looks like a harlot in order to appeal to the men of the world. What a condemning statement. That's what we do in our understanding of being deceived, thinking that if we can dress up the church and make it appealing to the men of the world, that somehow that's going to attract them. And that's not what Jesus has for his bride. And as faithful shepherds, we cannot tolerate 
or do that, which is Jesus is appealing to here in the first century at that church in Thyatira. The same thing is going on today is what I'm trying to get across. Don't think this is just ancient history or mythology or a bunch of fables. It's happening among us in our day. The fight is real. The war is real. We must be faithful. We must stand firm. We must be courageous regardless of the cost. Jesus is coming for a pure bride. And we need to flee adultery. 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, how the apostle concludes it. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And we all struggle to some degree with that. The testimony of Scripture is that God alone is worthy of worship. Idol worship robs God of his glory that is rightfully his, and it's something that he will not tolerate. Isaiah 42, verse 8 makes it, I will not share my glory with any idol. You shall have no gods before me. And if we think we are so modern and our technology is so great that... I don't fall down and worship at some carved wooden idol. Idolatry extends far beyond the physical idols and images of the false gods. Our modern idols, while appearing more sophisticated, are many and varied. It's manifested in our pride, our self-focus, our greed, our gluttony, a love for our possessions and money. And ultimately, it's all rooted in rebellion against God, which is his witchcraft. Jezebel was nothing more than a witch. They're still professing witches around. They haven't gone away. All idolatry of self has at its core the three lusts that are found in 1 John chapter 2. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of this world. The worldly system which is dominated by Satan. And if we're to keep ourselves from idolatry, we have to admit that it is rampant and rejected in all its forms. Pray that God would give us insight and wisdom and discernment to see where in each of our lives where we fall prey to that. These things are not of God, but they are of Satan. And by pursuing those things, those false idols, we will never find joy and fulfillment. It's a lie. It's a great lie in the same one Satan has been telling since he first lied to Adam and Eve. The church is far too naive on these things. Did God say... And the day you do it, you're going to be like gods. That's what all these pantheons of gods, these demigods, you'll be like gods, life immortal. People are still pursuing that today. And we're following for it, far too many of us. Even more sadly, many churches are propagating it through the preaching of the idol, as John pointed out, of self-esteem, felt needs. We just talked about that. That's an idol. God will meet our true needs. 
His grace is sufficient for our needs. He will give us what we want. But we will never find happiness and joy by focusing on ourselves. We've bought into the lie. Rather than dying to self and serving others, our hearts and minds must be centered on God and on others. This is why when Jesus was asked the greatest commandment, and Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your will, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Matthew chapter 22. And when we love the Lord and others with everything that is in us by God's grace and God's empowering spirit that lives within us, when we do that, there will be no room in our hearts for idolatry. And pray that God would do that among us in greater degrees as through this progressive sanctification.